today's podcast, we hear the highlights from day two of the World Conference of Science Journalists. We find out the winner of the bid to host the next conference in 2011, and delving into the sessions themselves, we'll be investigating the role of public relations in science journalism across the world. Plus, we hear how investigative journalists find their stories and how these stories can change the world by bringing out the truth. All that and more coming up in today's podcast from the 6th Annual World Conference of Science Journalists with me, Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientists.com. So, delegates have been curious all week about which country will win the bid to host the next conference in 2011. And the winner is... Egypt! So I spoke to the now former president of the World Federation of Science Journalists, Palab Ghosh, to find out how the board made their decision. Well, we had four really strong bids. It was uh, Finland, Uganda, Kenya, and a joint bid by the Arab Science Foundation and the American Science Association. It was a difficult choice. The, the executive board pondered long and hard. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the things that was important to the board was the culture that previous conferences had built, which is about critical, challenging science journalism, that the value added that science journalists bring is to ask the awkward questions, not just to campaign groups, not just to people who are obviously wrong, but from to governments, corporations, and even scientific institutions who have their own agendas. So what we've been trying to do at the London conference is to get uh, journalists that come along to be a bit more journalistic, to be a bit more kick-ass. And uh, we felt that uh, the vision provided by the uh, joint uh, US and Arab bid would provide that. Board member of the World Federation of Science Journalists, Palab Ghosh. And given Egypt's win, I spoke to the new president, Nadia El Awadi, who was undoubtedly very pleased about the decision. I am very pleased. We're really excited. Um, we're going to bring people to a different part of the world for this conference. Um, for the past three conferences, including London, it's been in the developed world. This will be a chance to bring people to a completely different part of the world, a different region. We're going to be representing the Arab world and Africa. We're going to be working closely with other Arab countries and other African countries on organizing this conference. We really hope that the, the journalists, when they come to the country, and then hopefully be able to visit the region afterwards, will find different kinds of stories to cover. They'll also be able to learn how we, as journalists in our part of the world, work. Um, what kind of challenges we face and how we overcome these challenges. Um, so we're really excited about this. We have a very excellent international program committee put together um, that we hope that will make this conference relevant to everybody, where, wherever they're from. So we can look forward to finding out more about how journalists work in the developing world at the next conference. World Federation of Science Journalists President, Nadia Elawadi. Now this year's conference is being held in London, so one of the day's sessions discussed the science reported by the British media in recent years to debate if it's doing it right or if it's getting it wrong. The speakers involved were John Martin, Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine at University College London and UK Science Minister Lord Drayson. Here's John Martin. I've just taken part in a very enjoyable uh, debate with Lord Drayson, who is the Science Minister. And we're debating whether the uh, British press were the best in the world or the worst in the world at reporting science. And I was speaking against the British press. Uh, I think Lord Drayson made some very good points uh, that 
there were difficulties in the past about the reporting in the press of the NMR vaccine, for example. Uh, and I also made some important points about uh, the way the press reported the use of animals in, in, in science, which was very, very negative. Uh, Paul Drayson's point was that things had improved since then and the press had pulled themselves together. My main point was uh, that there were still examples of uh, sensationalism from the, the press, which were very counterproductive, and raised patients' expectations above that which I, as a doctor, could uh, deliver. And, and I pointed out a headline in the, in the Daily Mail. Somebody from the floor said, ah, but that will have been done by the editor, not by us. And I said, well, that's a structural problem about how you work. You have to pull yourselves together because your uh, uh, journalism is too much beholden to the profit motivation of the owner of the newspaper or the journal or the magazine. John Martin, Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine at University College London. Now another theme running through this year's conference is the increasing role public relations is playing in the science we see reported in our media. Some journalists find it useful to be provided science news in this way, whilst others consider it lazy reporting. Ben Goldacre writes for The Guardian, and he spoke about the way industries, such as the pharmaceutical industry, use public relations to get the word out about their products. Well, I think the industry could be more open and transparent about what it does. I, I actually think that the forging of relationships between industry and patient groups and medical research charities is a good thing, because I think um, it's important for patients to be there in helping pharmaceutical companies devise research strategy, but also in terms of getting their messages out. Where I have a real problem, actually I don't know why they do this, because they don't need to do this, is where a, a company decides to set up a patient group and fund it and try and pretend it's something that it isn't. And I think that's, uh, that's something I worry about a lot, because I, um, uh, I think that's being duplicitous with the public. And I think we should all be careful, we should all be monitoring that very carefully. The industry bodies, uh, charities, um, uh, you know, the media, I think we should come down on it as hard as we can. And those groups who are approached to be involved in this, I think they should uh, question and scrutinise very closely what they're being asked to do and how, they and how they approach it, absolutely. I think we've all got to be casting a much more critical eye in a mass communication environment. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the key messages from today, I think. So we've heard Ben's views on PR in the Western world. But what about in developing world countries, such as South Africa? I spoke to Christina Scott, African news editor for SciDev.net, to find out. Most science journalism in South Africa is heavily reliant on press releases and there is a lot of unscrupulous reusing of press releases word for word or translating them into the various local languages and claiming them as their own work when in fact it's just come straight off a press release. And I have a love-hate relationship with press releases. I have a lot of reporters in my capacity as African news editor of the Science and Development Network website who think that their job is to take a press release and quote from it without even identifying the fact that it's a press release. And I find it very hard for them to persuade them not to do that. My other big problem is that most of the press releases that we have about African science actually emanate from outside the continent, and they tend to be congratulatory, pat-on-the-back things about how this particular university in the UK or in Canada or the US is doing something to help upgrade the conditions in Africa and it becomes a type of charity. I mean, if I relied on international press releases to cover African science, 
it would sound like nobody's actually doing anything themselves on the continent. Everything is being done for us by outsiders, and that would be a complete misrepresentation of the situation. So I'm, I'm really happy to get a decent press release, but I don't actually get that many from inside the continent right now. So Christina doesn't really trust or rely on press releases, but sees that many journalists across the African continent are becoming reliant on them. Now, as well as looking into public relations, the sessions today also brought attention to investigative journalism. James Randerson from The Guardian chaired a session discussing how investigative journalists find and break their stories. And The Morning saw a session titled Four Science Journalists That Changed the World. Quite a title. And they truly did change the world. One of these journalists was André Picard from The Globe and Mail in Canada. And he exposed an awful secret that had led to thousands of people being infected with HIV AIDS and hepatitis. So I spoke to him about how he found out the truth. So I wrote about tainted blood a lot. It's a story of blood that was infected with HIV and with hepatitis. And this became a big political scandal in Canada because of government inactions and cover-ups and document shredding related to this. What started out as a medical issue became a big social and political issue for us. Now, it's quite interesting the way you actually started out looking into this, though. Yes, it just became a series of coincidences. We saw a little story about it out of France, and then a president of our hemophilia society was fired, and then there was new hepatitis testing. So these were all sort of seemingly unrelated, but we made us wonder how, how much blood is infected if there's all this disparate action taking place. And so what, what exactly did you find? So what were the numbers and the facts about basically what wasn't being reported? Well, what we found was the worst ever health scandal in Canada. About 4,000 people infected with HIV AIDS and more than 10,000 with hepatitis. So very large numbers of people infected through a product that was supposed to save their lives, which is blood and blood products. What was the problems in the first place that meant all these people got infected? There were a lot of different issues at play. The main one is that uh, viruses came to infect the blood supply and there wasn't the appropriate reaction. The, the system just said, well, it's going to be too costly to deal with this. We kind of turned a blind eye to it. And then when the issue arose, they, they became a, a point where they, they tried to cover things up because they realized in retrospect they should have done a lot more. So it just compounded the tragedy. And so how did you go about then investigating this and just getting the correct figures so that exactly what you were saying was the truth? Well, it comes about slowly but surely. So it started with us, this one figure that was always tossed out, the risk is only one in a million in Canada. And we just began to doubt that figure. Is that a real number? Is it made up? And it was a made-up number. So we got the scientific papers that were commissioned by the government, and that was difficult, but through access to information, and then went back to the scientists and, and found the true numbers, which at the worst point, at the, the peak of the, the scandal, became about 1 in 266 units of blood were infected, a tremendously high number. And did you face any battles in terms of actually getting this out there? Well, there was a lot of pressure because we were essentially attacking a, an institution, the Red Cross, which did... A, wonder, a lot of wonderful work, and we never shot that down, but they made big, big mistakes, and, and they killed people. So there was a lot of pressure. Why are you attacking this venerable institution? Uh, you're going to make it difficult to collect blood, and that's going to kill people. So yes, there were all kinds of pressures, but the, the essential issue for us was getting the truth out there, resolving this issue so it didn't happen again. What would you advise for science journalists so that this kind of investigative journalism can just continue and the truth can come out? Well, my advice is always follow the science, follow the numbers, and don't be dissuaded by the emotion and the politics of it. There's going to be a lot of people trying to pressure you to not do it, but follow the science and I, I think you'll, you'll do well. 
So follow the facts and follow good science to report the truth. That was Andre Picard from the Globe and Mail in Canada. Now that's it for today's podcast, but join me tomorrow for the best bits from the final day of the conference. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientist.com. Thank you.